I am absolutely delighted to tell you that this show is being brought to you with the help of the lovely people of Hannah Hats, Donegal. I've been wearing Hannah Hats for about 10 years and I have to say, once you start wearing a top drawer quality hat, you can't go back. In days where everyone is after a Peaky Blinders look and they're all wearing these hats, these flat caps, it pains me to see so many people wearing caps of all shapes and sizes that you can tell from a mile off are just not good quality. The Hannah family have been making these hats in Donegal for almost 100 years. The tweed they use is quality Donegal tweed. You can feel the quality when you wear them, and I'm telling you, if you look after your hat, it'll last a lifetime. I still have my grandfather's hat from the 50s that I wore to my wedding. So check them out. HannahHats.com is their website. It's very user-friendly. Pick your style of hat, your material, your colour, your size, and bang, that's it, made to order. They also have all sorts of accessories like handbags and scarves as well as caps made especially for kids. So trust me, I would not endorse something that I couldn't recommend 100%. Go find your Hannah Hat people. You won't look back. Hello, Matt McGinn here. You're very welcome back to another episode of See You at Yours. My special guest this week is a very fine songwriter from this neck of the woods. He's a Coleraine originally, now living in Belfast, and his name is Anthony Toner. Anthony's been on the scene for many years and has enjoyed a lot of success locally. He's starting to make headway in the rest of the UK, which is great to see, and Ireland, uh, because he's, he's one of our best. I loved the chat with him. Uh, Anthony's a very good friend. It was great to head up to his lovely home in Belfast and uh, I really enjoyed the crack. So hope you enjoy it. I've put in a, a nice selection of Anthony's songs as well that I hope you enjoy. So go and check out uh, the rest of his music. As regards my own music, thanks so much to everybody who's been getting in touch with all the, the positive messages. I put out Lessons of War, the new album, this week. It's now available on Spotify, on iTunes. You can get the CD from the website. With a bit of luck, we'll be putting out some vinyl near the end of this year. There's a couple of lovely gigs that have been announced. We're doing a headline show at the Cathedral Quarter Arts Festival this year. That's May 3rd. That should be a very special show. It's a Sunday afternoon show, so get your tickets. With a bit of luck, it'll sell out, and uh, I really would love to see as many people there as possible. Before that, we're doing Whelan's on April 7th, upstairs. That should be a lovely show. Kira O'Neill is joining me for that. Kira, who sang Bubblegum. And uh, we're working on a wee tour of England at the minute in May. There's a couple of dates there. There's more to be announced. So uh, get check on the website, join the mailing list, just uh, keep in touch and with a bit of luck we will see you near your abode pretty soon. But in the meantime, get listening to the Lessons of War, enjoy it, I hope you do and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Like and subscribe, do all those things that try and get this podcast out there in uh, the public domain a little bit further. For now, enjoy my chat in Anthony Toner's lovely home in Belfast with See You at Yours with myself, Matt McGinn. Thanks. Uh, Andrea bought us a membership of the Royal Academy some in London some years ago because her mother lives in London and we go over to visit two or three times a year and with the card you can get in free 
to whatever exhibition is on at the ARA in Piccadilly and they have a really nice tea room and you can get in there as a member and you know all of that but anyway the magazine comes in and uh, just opening that magazine and looking at art I, I'm just buzzing for two or three days hmm. afterwards not because I want to paint or anything like that. It's just the idea of looking at it and saying, oh, look at that, look at the colour, look at the shading on that, you know. A photography, architecture, whatever it happens to be, it just enriches your life, you know. Whether you're driving past it on a motorway or walking around a gallery or hearing it as, you know, the spoken word or whatever it happens to be, the more you get of it, I think the, the better it, I think the better it makes you as an artist, the better it makes you as a human being. Hmm. I must actually try that because I find that there's very few music styles or, or whatever that I can enjoy because half the time you're sort of um, thinking, oh, how did you do that? Yeah, or, you're disassembling. Or can I do that? Yeah, yeah. disassembling. Sort kind of reverse engineering. Finding the trick sort of yeah. thing. How did you get that snare sound? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Whereas uh, maybe like half an hour of classical music for me where I'm going, that's that's just beyond me. Yeah, yeah. Where I can just relax and, and switch off. Yeah. So maybe I actually should start looking at the other arts. Do you know, I went to one of those um, songwriting weekend workshop things up at the Causeway Coast. I think, were you on one of those one year I was there No, too? but I've heard of it, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I don't even know if they still do them, but I remember going to one of them and they had a couple of little seminar things and one of them was Ian Archer. And Ian had said that he read somewhere that uh, Bob Dylan, in his young days in New York, had become obsessed with an artist called Red Grooms. And he said, I, I had kind of read it somewhere and filed it away. And then he said, I saw a couple of Red Grooms paintings. And he said, they're like big cartoons. It's like a streetscape and it's full of people and cars. And there's burglaries going on and people being mugged and people kind of making love and people getting in and out of taxis and... Uh, and people arguing and, you know, people chasing other people. And he said, it's just teeming with life. And he said, the first time I saw it, I remember thinking, wow, Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement thinking about the government. It's just like this tumultuous thing, you know. Hmm. Um, and then he himself said that he had had a point, I think, where he had had like really bad writer's block. And he went to the Rothko room at the Tate mm -hmm. in uh, in London and he said, you know, you sit in the room and you're surrounded by these big red blocks of colour all around the room, you know. And he said, um, I don't know how it happened, but he said, after going there for three or four visits, songs just started coming back. And he said, I have no way of explaining why that was. So I think it just feeds different receptors in the brain or whatever. Mm -hmm. I just say, you know, bring it on. Yeah. The more of it, the more of it you can get, the more the more I think you want to make. Yeah. Which is probably why a lot of my songs at the minute are sort of coming out very sort of, ah! <laughs> because yeah. a lot of what I'm getting in my um, news feed is, is, is that like, just frustration. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. It, it's moving so fast and there's so much at stake that it's very hard to resist tuning in to see what disasters happened today you know yeah. what has trump said today you know what has the you know what what has the house of commons decided this afternoon you know and actually it's probably not helping us as artists but you can't keep your eyes off it it's like every day is like watching another 
you know, another car crash in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Interesting times. Whenever you're sort of uh, reading about history in school and stuff, and you cover like, you know, an incredibly important 10 years over about three pages, you miss all this stuff. Like. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting as well, because I, I don't know if you're conscious of it, but, you know, who was it, Patrick Kavanagh said, you know, uh, we have lived in important places. You know, the idea that, you know, they will be writing about this. In 50 or 60 years' time, this will be on the curriculum. The yeah. great Brexit disaster. What went wrong? How could we have avoided that, you know? And here we are in, in the, the middle of it, you know? And I suppose when you think back, you know, our, you know, our parents would have been living through the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the assassination of Kennedy. Yeah. All of these things that that look seismic to us now, that was like, have you heard? You know, where were you when you yeah. heard the news? <clears throat> but your your memory fascinates me. Like, mm. you, you have the most incredible memory I think I've ever met in a person. Really? Are you aware of that? Uh, not so much. A lot of people say to me about remembering lyrics and quotes and stuff like that, you know? I, I, do, I, I, I'm at a loss to explain really why that is or where it came from. I, I think if I try to, to, to dissect it, I, I'm, I'm an only child. I was very bookish as an only child. And I think remembering clever things that I could quote was something that I did, I think, to impress my mum and dad, hmm. to get attention. And... You know, I may have memorized a line or something and used it in school one day and got praised by a teacher. And I was so hungry for the praise that I thought, I must remember to do that mm-hmm. again. I, it may be that, I don't know. But I, I, I do know that I can remember lyrics of songs that I haven't played for years. They're still in there somewhere, like a filing cabinet drawer that you open and... You know, the Greenfields of France is still in there. Why? I haven't sung that in 20-odd years. But, you know, um, and and there's some of it is like we all, I think all of us know the entire lyrics of Take It Easy by the Eagles or Brown Eyed Girl because mm-hmm. we've all played it so many times. <clears throat> but there's other stuff that sticks in there and I don't know why. Um, I think remembering lines of poetry and stuff like that, I think that's all about trying to impress people. I As a kid, I was trying to impress people by memorising things. And the habit seemed to stick, so that's that's the only way I can kind of explain it. I think you know. And but it, does it, is that the same skill then that would transpire into the fact that, like say for example, all the like James Taylor guitar licks and stuff. I mean, you must have been very studious in every approach that you did. That you, you could sort of go, okay, well, I'm I'm not gonna listen to that and sort of, you know, get half a handle on it. I'm gonna play it the way he plays it, or I'm gonna you know. I think so. I think, well, the, the, I was kind of, I was kind of protected as an only child. Um, my mother was very keen. My mother was very keen that I would stay indoors, uh, and not go out running the streets or climbing trees or potentially jumping in the deep end or you know, uh, and and that suited me fine. I was quite happy to sit at home and read my books and listen to music. But when I actually started to play guitar. I would spend hours. Mm. I remember there's a James Taylor song called You Can Close Your Eyes, 
which starts with an almost classical do 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 do. It's a little thing that goes from a one chord to a five chord, and I remember sitting literally for hours, for almost an entire day, going, "How does he do that and then resolve to that? How does that happen?" Fingers. What age you there? I would have been maybe sixteen, seventeen. Mental. You know when I should have been out kicking a football and chasing girls and climbing trees and going to the swimming pool or whatever. I was at home trying to learn You Can Close Your Eyes by James Dean. I got it. I got it, you know. And I remember also uh, my my guitar hero at that time was Adrian Culbertson, uh, brother of Clive. Uh-huh. He's a phenomenal guitar player. And I used hmm. to, on the way home from school, he worked in a hi-fi shop and on the way home from school I used to call in and ask Adrian's advice, what should I be playing? What should I be listening to, you know? And I remember he said to me, go up to Ivor Gordon's. Ivor Gordon had a music shop in Long Commons in Coleraine. And he said, go up to Ivor Gordon's and buy a chord dictionary. I'd take it home and learn every chord in it. <laughs> and I did, because Adrian <laughs> told me, you know? And I, and all those chords, they all stuck with me, you know, to this day. Uh, it's a 13th, that's major seven, that's a minor seven with a flat five and blah, blah. And um, it seemed important that it seemed important to me that I had to be able to impress people if I had to. And have you still got that? That that oh yeah need to impress people. Oh yeah, yeah. That that and and one thing, just <clears throat> this pathological desire to be loved by everybody. You know what's that about? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That just bad decisions. But you know, yeah. And I I think it all it, it all goes back to our childhoods. You know. Look at me, you know. Don't you think I'm great? <laughs> <laughs> and it sucks us into saying yes to all kinds of things that we should say no to, and to spending more time on things than it probably deserves, and answering every email and every you know. It's it's yeah. it seems important somehow. G is for guitars and H is for hard work. Type it or you write it, but you get it done. It's all to be left when you hit the grind. I is for ink, J is for jazz, and K is for kindness. It's an investment you just won't believe. The more you put in, the more you. I remember it was very important to me. That I, that I was able to sit and play the guitar and play, you know, Chris Christopherson songs and Elvis songs and stuff like that, that my mum and dad loved. Yeah. That they'd be proud of me, that I could do that in front of relatives and stuff. And, and that would be great. Oh, he's, isn't he great? What a, he's a great player and all that sort of stuff, you know. But I was conscious that the minute I wanted to do a Bruce Springsteen song that I'd learned, my mother would be like, don't be showing off. You know, there was, there's always a balance that you... The, but you remember, what's, what's the Paul Simon song? Um... Late in the evening. Late in the evening, yeah, uh, yeah. I learned to play some lead guitar and I was underage in this funky bar. Yeah, I stepped, stepped outside, outside and smoked myself a J. And when I came back to the room, everybody just seemed to groove and I turned my amp up loud and I began to play. <laughs> and it was late in the evening and I blew that room away, yeah. right? That's the feeling. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, and the minute you get that, it's like, I want to do this next Friday again, you yeah. know? And also, people might pay me to do it. You, you, know? get, you get that feeling and then... You do that for a couple of years, and then you get that feeling with your own song. Yeah. 
and then it's very hard to go back. That's right. Yeah, that is. It's very addictive. That's like a drug. Yeah. When you write one, because I mean, you know as well as anybody knows that songs are like machines. Yeah. You know they have a beginning and a middle and an end and a hook and a chorus and a melody and a chord progression and a a high note and a low note and a guitar lick or whatever it happens to be. There's a mechanism, and when it works, you know, like all the tumblers all line up and the safe door opens. You know. Mm -hmm. You want it every time, you know. You want it again tomorrow, you know. Um, and that's then there is no better feeling, you know. It's hard. It's hard work, but when it actually clicks, when the planets all line up, there's nothing to beat it, you know. Yeah. And it must. It must be the same. It must be the same when, when a painter suddenly decides, oh my God, that's the color, that's the color that I want for his jacket. It perfectly finishes this painting, or you know, you know, a classical composer realizes that's it has to be a cello. Now I know what that is, you know, um, you know, or novelists putting all the full stops in the right places and the commas, you know, there has to be a moment when you know this is it, that's it, it just yeah. I would I would get that in Mexen. I love yeah. Mexen, like, and whenever it gets to the point where it's like, like one one dB. I mean, you can go like you can go smaller than one dB, yeah. but I mean. Yeah. yeah, once you go below one dB, like of difference, but yet whenever you get to that stage of you're going, um, it's just not right. It's just not right. One dB down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Whenever you're just into but, those fine details. I mean, the mixes and stuff that you've been getting recently have sounded amazing to oh, me. Oh, cheers, boy. You know, like they, like on Una's track on Marianne, for example. Yeah. I mean, there's a lovely mix on that, and there's yeah. a lovely feel to it. Is that? I mean, is that kind of self-taught, or have you? You know, have you worked in studios and watched people, or is it all the ears? I think it's all ears. I do learn stuff, but I'm very bad at at having a formula. Like, for example, setting up a template. Yeah. There's guys that just they can click that and they go, okay, there's a template that straight away puts all these compressors and these EQs yeah. into this, you know, mix bus and that. Like that would that would um, from when I was a kid. Any work that I do, I have to sweat. Yeah. And really, you know, pull my hair out overly. And does it feel as full of self-doubt as the creative process? Is, is, is everyone a torture? Or, or yeah, actually, I, I, I mean, I have no. Con I don't know if I could actually mix anything. I would be. Do you mean? Do you mean like if you're listening to your own voice or your own takes and stuff like that? I, I mean, if you were mixing something, would every one of them? Uh, you know, when when you finish it, do you think? I have no idea if that's any good or not. Or oh, I yeah, because that's my creative <clears throat> response. Is yeah. I've just written a song. It might be the worst piece of drivel that I've ever done. I have no idea until I leave it for two or three weeks and go back. And sometimes there isn't time for that, you know. Uh, again, another great quote: Hemingway. Right. Hemingway said that awful feeling of not knowing if it's any good or not. That's called the artist's reward. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, I had, again, I had one last night where I had a lyric, a lyric that has been knocking around my head for maybe two or three years. And I was in the car yesterday. I went up to Coleraine to see my dad. And on the way home, I was kind of throwing lyrics around in the car, which I do quite often. I'll say things out loud in the car without a melody or anything, just, mm -hmm. just with a lyric. And I got home and got three or four sheets of paper and a pencil, old school, and wrote down what I thought I had. And then I remember thinking, no, I'm going to stay with this. I'm going to finish this. I'm going to get four or five verses. 
you know, even just placeholders, I'm going to get it. And I got five verses and I left it last night and went and had something to eat thinking, that's okay. There's something there I can kind of chisel that back, you know. I got up this morning and looked at it and it's, this is not going to do, you know. <laughs> so, but it's, <clears throat> I think there's something about getting it, you know, getting it started. I was talking to, um, I was talking to Brendan Murphy uh -huh. and Brendan writes quite a lot with uh, Sharon Vaughan. And Sharon's a well-known Nashville songwriter. And occasionally I think Sharon will come over and they'll work on some songs together. And and Brenton says it's very interesting. He says, "You never get to leave it. You never get to leave." He says, "No, no, you're not. We're finishing it. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we will. If we need four <clears throat> verses, we're not getting up from the table until we have four verses. It might be a Nashville thing, Matt. I don't know, but I think maybe there's something to be said for that. You know, it's one of the things I love about the co-writing. Like, mm -hmm. it's almost like um, it's almost like the two are climbing a mountain. Yeah, and halfway up." Somebody's gonna falter, like, and yeah. say, "Look, it's not. What's let's the leave point? it. Let's, let's leave it." And yeah. then, and the other person goes, "No, get up with your feet. We're gonna." <laughs> and then it could be that maybe another hundred yards up the mountain, that other person's mm. going to get, and the, you know, and the person's going, "Look, come on, sure, you yeah. know, you're right. We're nearly there now. So may as well do it." And and it gets you a lot of the time. It gets you over the finish line, or you get stuck in the mountain, and one of them has to eat the other. <laughs> That's what's put you off co-writing for years, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get eaten. I'll have a bun instead. <laughs> yeah, that's almost a year since we... I know. I know. And it's, it keeps occurring. <coughs> I, the song is so strong, I should do something with it, make it a single, put it out, make a bit of a... And I've just been... I've just not been really lucky. I've had so many gigs this year with the, with two yeah. in the album. And I just, in between, I seem to think, I need to do my marketing for that and invoicing I need to email him and reply to that so I, I don't seem to be able to find the time and give give each of the songs the kind of the, the the support that they really need but I will I will have to get on to it you know but still I mean there straight away you're being hard on yourself there by what you haven't done but you but this year you have done a lot like oh uh, this has been a tremendous year for me yeah pardon me eating while I'm talking it's um I'm really really grateful and feel very very lucky album was going to come out in February and I start, and I went out and started looking for gigs I was amazed at the number of places that said yes here twice, or, or uh, here and, and some in Scotland and England yeah. that's still very new for me yeah I mean I'm still you know going over there and playing to 15 or 20 people but it's okay I'm traveling very light and so long as so long as I've got somewhere to stay and that night, you know, it's a it's a place for me to go and play and try and build an audience, mm -hmm. um, and that's probably going to be a three or four year 
journey to yeah. try and build up some contacts there. But uh, but here as well, you know the the the. The places that said yes, I was amazed to get as many gigs this year as I, and it's great to be busy, um, and it's it's going to be strange when I get to the end of June, and there are no more gigs for really not that many gigs for the rest of the year, and virtually nothing in the diary for next year. But I want I need to knuckle down and get writing again. I'm not doing any writing at the minute. I scribbled that thing last night, but that's the first in months. Yeah. And I guess the guy that gets away from me, if you don't, it's it's, it's like you got to exercise it every three or four days. And but you know, you'd always said to me that it was just like a door opening and door closing. So I mean, like, do you ever find yourself going because I know that I won't be able to stop after one song that I, I haven't really, I'm not allowing myself to dedicate my time to yeah to even contemplate writing. I, you know, something I I work between the two because there are times when I think, well, you put something out in February. And now you're touring until the end of June. Really, nobody's expecting anything from you for maybe another year or so. So, you know, put your feet up and read a book. You know, go for a walk or whatever. And then there's another voice in my head that says, you're a songwriter. You're supposed to be writing songs. (laughs) Get your guitar out and sit with the page and start work. And I think, actually, the more of the second thing that you do the better the quality is. I'm amazed when I hear people say things like, you know, well, we had 23 songs for this album and I whittled it down to these 12. I've never been like that. (laughs) If there's 13 songs on the album, you can be sure I wrote 13. There might have been 14, but there's never 25, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think maybe I should get them to the stage where there is 25, you know? Um, I don't know. But, I mean, you need... need you need the input as well before you get the output. So, I mean, yeah. whenever you sit, talk about, you know, just sitting down and I think of Justify just sitting down and reading the book. Yeah. But, I mean, that's that's your input that something happens I, then. I think and, so, yeah. And in your brain that, that needs to, you know... Well, you need to travel and go and meet people and see yeah. things and, you know... Um, I think even just the process of writing, I don't know about you. I mean, my process, of, if I can... I mean, I would. I used to journal quite a lot, um, particularly when my parents were going through, you know, my mother's kind of final illness and and my father's, you know, descent into Alzheimer's. Both of those things happened in tandem, and I kind of lived through three or four years of of really very deep anxiety and you know all of that and and worry and all kinds of stuff. And I journaled a lot, and a load of songs came out of that. Not out of those pages, but just the process of writing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot to be said for just writing, even if it's just writing letters to people or if it's a diary or whatever it happens to be. I think the more of that I do, the more songs come out of it, you know? I mean, is it... Do you find something like that as well? Do you do anything like that as well? I did, the, the one thing I did do uh, over this last six months to a year is um, I took a notion to start doing album reviews for folk yeah. radio for two reasons. Because I wanted to to write something that wasn't, uh, or type something that wasn't an email or, or a song. Yeah. And also I wanted to an excuse to listen to music. Yeah. Because um, because I'm I'm as guilty as 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 many people are of like walking around the house with a, the phone listening to music and stuff because I just don't have time. Yeah. Between you know school runs and whatever, um, but I needed an excuse just to sit down and and properly listen. 
and then um all of a sudden then I'm writing in a different context that it's not rhythmical or you know it doesn't have to rhyme it is yeah. rhythmical but um but I I found I suppose I found that it, it it's it's just any any practice you can get into to open on an empty page yeah is is good practice I think so yeah I think there's some there's definitely something in it I mean it used to be one of the techniques that they had in the artist's way you know, for unblocking was that you were supposed to do the morning pages. What's the morning pages? Uh, the morning pages idea was that if uh, if you were a writer of any kind and you had a block, the idea was that you're supposed to get up in the morning. If you get up, for example, to go to work at half seven every morning, the idea was that you get up at seven and you sit and you write three pages. Hmm. You type or you scribble, whatever it happens to be, you write three pages of anything a diary a letter to your younger self a short story um a spew of hatred about the news whatever it happens to be you write three pages and then you never keep it you never keep it because what you write is not important Hmm. the business of writing is what's important and the idea is that if you do that you open up the idea of being expressive and the writing comes back now this happened to me about 10 years ago um, I I had got songs that I could not get finished and somebody gave me this book Julia Cameron The Artist's Way and I tried this thing I would get up and do three pages of gibberish you know and then when it was over you just close the file do you, do you want to save? no gone you get up the next morning and do it and the songs came back hmm. it was I was in within two weeks and I and I I said to myself afterwards, I should keep doing that because it's obviously very good. But of course, you get lazy, you know. Oh, I'll lie in this morning, you know, or oh, I can't have that meeting at eight o'clock or whatever, yeah. you know. So you get out of the habit of it. But I think actually, all kinds of, you know, even if you sit down and write a letter to somebody longhand or whatever, I think it mm-hmm. it opens up some part of you that you don't normally use, you know. I sense it in your writing. I sense. The focus in your writing is sharper now than than it's ever been. I mean, there are songs on Common Man where you can see, you know, it it starts on that subject and it stays on the subject. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, that that idea has been very carefully thought of because it's something it's something we can get distracted by. You get a really good line. It's not strictly speaking relevant, but it's a really good line, mm-hmm. and it's very very hard to say no no. Off you go. Yeah. You know, it's like killing your children, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. no. Go back in the notebook. You'll be ready for something else some other time. But it rhymes and it's perfect and it's, you know, you have to resist. Um, I think I'm always doing that. If I get two or three lines at the start of a song, I, I do tend to sit and say, okay, who is this person talking? And who are they talking to? And what is this situation? And... And where are we going with this, you know? Because otherwise, it becomes just a series of lines that... Mm-hmm. And sometimes that works, you know? But not all the time. It doesn't satisfy me much. If love was a hunger, i call for the bill And one more bottle of wine I waited till every glass was filled And drank until the closing time Till the day Till the hour and the minute I will stay 
mean, there was a great phrase that somebody, I think it was actually Paul Simon, who had said, uh, for, for people who, who kind of put down rock and roll lyrics, he would say, no, 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 you've got to understand it. It has to rhyme. It has to have the same rhythm. Each time it's got to conform to a rhythm. It's got to conform to all of the other stuff that's being said in the song. It has to make sense in the song. But more importantly, and the hardest thing of all, it's got to sound like you just thought of it. Mm-hmm. Like it just came out of your mouth, you know? And I mean, I've always been conscious of that with, with your work. There's never been an unnatural thing. It has always felt, your, your work has always felt very natural. You sounded very natural to me, you know? Like double bed and all the rest of it, you know? <laughs> it always felt very, like it, there was no artifice involved, you know? But it, it seems to hit the center of the, you know, the ball hits the center of the tennis racket better Yeah. as as the albums have gone on, you know? Um, and that, you know, the master, I suppose the master of stuff like that is probably still John Prine, where it sounds like it just came out of his mouth, you know? Yeah. And yet, Great profundity in what he and what he does. He, his work fascinates me, you know. Yeah. And how how they all do it fascinates me. I I'm always pulling songs apart and thinking, why that line? Why that word? You know. Yeah, I'd um, say that's a very healthy thing to do. Yeah, th- I think study so. the masters. And yeah, I mean, I think and and you find it in surprising places, you know. Um, and the masters are still the masters, you know, Joni Mitchell and. You know, Ron Sexsmith and Leonard Cohen and people like that still. Ron Sexsmith, I don't know. Some a lot of time, I, I find it very hard to see past production. Yes, and maybe I wouldn't be a maybe a massive fan of his production. Well, ironically, I think probably the first two albums are the stronger songs, right? And strange production values, very strange use of slapback echo and stuff like that, and yeah. very unadorned and very thuddy drums in places, and yet it works for me. I think it was an attempt to. It sounds kind of, kind of, almost deliberately quirky. Yeah. Um, for want of a better word, um, and some people do find his voice very off-putting. Um, first that second album, other songs is some great stuff on there. Mm. Some very dark stuff on it as well. I remember he started a song. It's a song on that album called "Clown in Broad Daylight," and it starts with uh, the verse. Standing by the side of the road near the overpass with a sign around his neck that says car wash, free balloons, is a clown in broad daylight. That's the opening line. I remember thinking, wow, that's an amazing way to open a song. And yet the image of a clown in broad daylight, because you don't really see clowns in broad daylight. The idea of that image is arresting. And it's a great line in the way that John Hyatt will find a line that just... You drop it in, it's like you drop it into a petri dish and it grows a song when you get a good line, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember thinking that that's a great way to open a song, you know. But I remember thinking, how can you sustain that? Yeah. Of course he goes on to use it, you know, we're all clowns in broad daylight in some form or fashion, you know. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of Paul Simon yeah. way there, isn't it? Yeah. Hyatt, John Hyatt is a great guy, that you know, the master of the opening line, you know. It could have been the kiss of my life. I mean, that's a great opening line for a song, you know? <laughs> well, well, well Turn my face up to the lights Well, well, well Hope the days are numbered 
hands and we talked the whole night long. We knew the mood was right, but the time was wrong. Not a memory won't let me be. I'm like a plastic bag that's caught in a tree. Well, well, well. Turn my face. What uh, what song of yours now would be like the where you, where you got everything right? I you know I still go back to every time I sing it. I sing it nearly every night that I play it. That I play, I still go back to well, well, well. And I, I I listen to that song and I think, yeah, that's it's the song that satisfies me most as a songwriter. It's like your heart's done time in jail. After all these years, you have to let it out on bail. And I'm thinking, wow, that's that's a good line. And somebody else has rhymed jail and bail before, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. And there's a line in it as well. The memory won't let me be. I'm like a plastic bag that's caught in a tree. I really like the images in it. Yeah. And I like the way the guitar sounds in it. It's in open G with a dropped C. On the bottom E on string? On the bottom E string, it's just hmm. down to C. So you play that opening lick in open G, and then you reach down for that C note. And it still sounds kind of surprising to me when I hear it. It doesn't sound like a guitar should. I, somebody told me that it's, I think it's a Joni Mitchell tuning. It wasn't deliberate, I just found it hmm. by accident. I was capoing it one day uh, in G at the second fret, and I miscapoed and missed the last thing. I went down a, a tone lower. You know, it was an accident, but I thought, oh, that's nice. You mm-hmm. know? But, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I go back to that one, and that's, that still satisfies me. And It's a class song. I love that, and it gets a really good reaction. Every night I play it, it still gets a really nice reaction. Um, and, you know, there are others. There are other songs that I still have a really good relationship. I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I don't have any songs. Well, I've got a few, but there's not many songs in the back catalogue that I think. What was I thinking there? You know. But well, I mean, what are you on the, your ninth album? Tenth album? Yeah, ninth. ninth. Album? I mean, that's a lot of songs, like. So that's, I mean, of say if that's, <clears throat> you know, that's like a hundred and. 12 or 113 yeah. or something like that at the minute, you know. And many of those are in the pool of, of what you would be looking at for a tour. Like, you wouldn't, like, say if you're doing, you know, uh, two hours, what's that, like 20 songs a night. Yeah. You know, but you probably would have a pool of... There's a pool of eight or nine that would be on every show. Right. East of Louise and Sailor Town and Road to Five Mile Town. Well, yeah. well, well. Cousins at funerals. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's about seven or eight of those that I would do every night. And then I would do three or four from the new album. And I would do three or four covers. I would do a James Taylor thing and I would do a couple of old blues tunes to you know to show off the guitar playing a bit. Um, and then every now and then, randomly, I'll take one from an older album. It's interesting, I'd, I'd, I did a gig last week around here at the Eastside Centre. And two people come up and ask me for weird songs. Mm-hmm. And he says, you used to do that song Broken in Advance. I said, oh, I haven't sung that in about four years. Oh, I love that song. And I thought, I would never have thought of that. Do you know? go? Um, I, it, it, uh, maddeningly, he told me when the gig was over. Otherwise, I might have thrown it in. 
and um, Nula McKeever was there and she said, do you ever do that song, uh, What Is Love To You? And that's 10 years ago. I said, oh, no, I don't think I've sung that song live since that album came out. I always liked that one. And I thought, it's strange how that, certain songs will stick with different people, you know. Yeah. Um, you should always maybe ask people for a wee request list before the tour starts, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's probably should, actually, you know, because... Uh, People are a bit shy sometimes about coming forward and saying, would you do such and such a song, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's good, you know? I, I'm glad I've got I've got a, a bundle that I can choose from. Yeah. Um, and some of them have dated better than others, but that's, that's what happens, you know? But then you... Um, like whenever you, whenever you think, oh God, I haven't sung that in about seven or eight years... Normally, with every song of yours, like with me, it would be like, you know, there might have been a guitar part for that, but I'm I'm just gonna wing it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, with you, um, each song has its own guitar dance as yeah, well. Yeah. So, the words you'd probably would you be going all oh, right? Well, I know I could probably get through it, but I don't know the guitar bit, or I don't know the I know the guitar, yeah. but I don't know the words. But you'd have to have the full package there, would you? Maybe kind of and. Most of it is still with me. Yeah. Those two examples, for example, I could I could do both of those, I think. Um, there was an album I did, three or four albums back, there was one called Sing Under the Bridges. Yeah. And there was a lot of stuff on that album that was in double drop D or open G. And I remember a lot of it was up around the fifth or seventh fret. <laughs> and I thought to myself... I was in Canada and there was a there's a fan of mine in Canada. There's one of the songs off that album that he particularly loves. And I thought, I have no idea how I played that. I would have to sit with that for ages and think, Oh yeah, you start on the you start on the fourth fret and leave that string open and all the rest of it. Um I think that's maybe the perils of working in weird opening tunings from yeah. the, from time to time is that you forget how you started it and what capu you were using and stuff, you know. Um but most of those ones uh, in in standard tuning, I can I can wing it, and I, and like like we said at the start of the conversation, most of the lyrics are still in there. Yeah, I can remember most of them. Um, there will be a limit though. Um, there'll be a point where my memory starts to drop off. You know. There are joy riders watching you from the dark. They know your house and your car and the place that you always park. They missed the boom, but they got the crash. They'd love to redistribute your cash. And you hold your key so tight that they leave a mark. Maybe they weren't born to it. Maybe they never stood a chance. Their hearts were broken in advance. So much harder than it did way back at the start And you worry about the toll that it takes on your wounded heart You just hope that it wins back what it loses Between the teeth marks and the bruises And all the big ideas that used to seem so smart
reading wise and stuff like that, I've always been a magpie. I've always been. Um, when I went to I went to grammar school in Coleraine, and I didn't have very many friends for the first two or three years at that school. It was quite lonely, and I discovered poetry, and there was a really good poetry section in in the library at the school, and I would just go there and work my way through from one shelf to the next, start at Auden and work my way through to Yevtushenko, read mental. all the poets. And the language, the Dylan Thomas stuff, you know, you read that and what he does with language and stuff, you know, that became a big thing for me. See, that stuff I hopefully will all, will, will someday just go, okay, now's Click. a good time, I'm going to get stuck in Auden yeah. <laughs> or something, you know. Yeah. I mean, hopefully that'll happen someday. Do you, know what's, do you know what's an amazing experience if you haven't had it before? Uh, the give it clean. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from that one, the the BBC have I think you can still buy this on, I think it's a double CD under Milk Wood. Oh, a play for voices, read by Richard Burton, hmm. with a cast, and it's extraordinary. It was a it, they put it out on radio in the fifties or sixties, I think. I think it's a double CD. I have it up the stairs. If I get time sometime, I'll copy it for you because it is what what Dylan Thomas did with language in that and to hear it read aloud with those voices. Mm -hmm. It's fabulous. I remember when I I first read it and read the language being made to dance like that. It changed the way I looked at words Hmm. forever. It was never the same after that, you know. Do you think that if you were a kid now... With the amount of distractions that there are between computers and Google and whatever, would you? Yeah, I worry about it. I I think I genuinely do worry about it. But I, you you don't think you would have found the patience to to hit books as as much I or read as much? I I I don't know. It 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 it's hard not to sound like an old fart when you say stuff like that, but it does worry me that. Uh, I don't know if the people who are experimenting with language and doing daring things with language are still getting through. Yeah. Getting through all the filters and all the distractions and stuff like that. You know, let alone history. I was up visiting my dad yesterday and in the the big day room they had the TV on on the 75th anniversary of Mm D-Day. was on at Portsmouth, you know, and... uh, there were two nursing staff there that were helping my dad into a chair and one of them said to me, what is D-Day? You know, like, is this, we're going to have this every year now kind of thing. And I said, no, this was the Allied invasion of Normandy to, to free Europe from the Nazis, you know. All right, when was that? It was 1944, this is the 75th anniversary. All right, was that the start of the war then? No, that was near the end of the war. You know, it was, just, what is D-Day? You go on the BBC News app now, and it says, "What were the D-Day landings?" Because there's a whole generation that have no idea what that is. Yeah, you know, and I worry that the same thing is someday going to be true of Elvis Presley and the Beatles. And yeah, three pints and a couple of love bites. Push finally comes to show, and she's so happy she's telling her friends this time it must be love. They're popping pills, running wild like it's going out of style And I blame the parents every time 
One of the most important things that, or that I was told to think in, in regards to raising my kids was that it's okay to be bored. Yeah. Like if, we, like if we drive to Dublin, they don't have any tablets, they don't have any, yeah. you know, like one, one's six, one's four, one's one and a half. But if they don't want to go for a sleep, they can look out the window or they can have the crack. That's right, yeah. But um, make up a song. Make up a song, yeah. Yeah, because boredom actually is where I think where, where creativity quite often comes from. I know you were sort of maybe trying to hide away from the world at the same time, but you probably wouldn't have been hiding away if you hadn't got the, the excuse to be able to hone in on something. Yeah. And um, if kids can't find something to do with boredom rather than other than go straight on to Google yeah. or straight on to I mean luckily um, I had you know 25 years of my life where there was no internet yeah. so I've got a something to to compare it to yeah I mean there's no such thing as boredom now no and and boredom can, can do some incredibly creative things oh yeah like. you better believe it you mean if you and I were locked in in a room with just a guitar and a notebook, you know, you would, the songs would fly out of you because because I would have just killed you, um, yeah, and had to eat me, you know, <laughs> to halfway you. up that mountain, the creative, the creative mountain. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe kids are getting that kind of stimulation from from really good TV writing, or you know, or or, or whatever it happens to be, or you know, a podcast or an enormously stimulating thing now, you know. Um, I worry that there's a lot of written word stuff that's that's probably being pushed to one side, um, and I am aware that it sounds like the worst kind of old fartery to come out with stuff like that. You know, yes. I was in I was in somebody's house recently, you know, and I I walked out there had a a wall of of books and there was lots of you know novels and poetry and all the rest of it, and down along the bottom shelf, in a big neat row, Encyclopedia Britannica. Do you remember Encyclopedia Britannica? <laughs> Everybody wanted to have Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. And you think, you know, that's that's all on your phone now, you know? Yeah. yeah. Anything that's in there is on your phone. It's all, you know, Mom, when are we going to get Encyclopedia Britannica? Are you joking? Go down to the library. <laughs> Put on your coat and walk down to the library and look up the Austro-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> yeah. i tell you what, the, on the library now, the library are... App is doing podcasts, no, not podcasts, audiobooks. Yes, which is class. Yeah, so you can sort of have it for like a week or two or something like that, and it's then it'll go off your phone. Yeah. So, uh, so I must, I must do that because I do like, I, I do quite like listening to stuff when I'm driving. There's a tendency to jump in the car and I'll just put Led Zeppelin on again, and I think, no, come on. I've, I've well, I, I mean, I just always attempt to have, you know, the entire Matt McGinn catalog in the glove compartment there, just in case I need it. You know. <laughs> You know, very sweet. Of course it is. You know, <laughs> it's it's dual carriageway music. <laughs> Anthony, I'm going to leave you to the the rest of your beautiful day in your beautiful house. Thank but, you, uh, thank you so very what much. What a pleasure for... to talk to you. I hope, I, I hope that there's something in there that's interesting. You know, it's all. It's, it's just all there. this is this is a pleasure because you and I don't often get enough time just to kind of yarn about things like that. And I think it's always good to have an insight. But must also be, before you go, let me give you a copy of the. I meant to give you a copy of the album of Frank Ormsby. Oh, lovely. Just as a, as a curiosity, you know. Class. So I'll go and get it for you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Do you want another cup of tea? I might take a cup of tea, eh? I might have been born to write your elegy. The moment I lift my pen, 
your soft knock will be heard at the door. For 50 years or more, you have been my work in progress. I know what brings you here, the hope that this time I'll produce a real poem, the ballad of Paddy Ormsby. A singer will learn it by heart, and after the to and fro of gruff persuasion and ritual demur, will hang his cap on his knee, close his eyes, and sing it to a crowded bar. It will, you imagine, portray you as hero of sideline brawls, the man to have on your side when the fists fly. Your self-esteem will surely rattle the roof as the last note of homage fills the room with whoops and whistles. But it's my elegy too, half darkened with loss. You'll get no ballad this time either. So again, you plunge into the unshaping night. I slip the latch, already you are out of sight. Isn't that beautiful? It's called My Father Again, and it's from an album called The Kiss of Light, which is a collaboration between Frank Ormsby and Anthony Toner, who you just heard on See You at Yours with myself, Matt McGinn. Thanks very much for listening, folks. Like and subscribe. Our next episode is with a wonderful songwriter, Jared Dickinson. So if you do subscribe, I'm sure you'll be notified about the next episode straight away. So thank you very much for listening. See you next time.